This is a Library Channel program from the UC San Diego Library. Visit us at www.uctv.tv slash library channel for interviews, author talks, and other programs that will inspire you to read, write, think, and dream. In the next 40 minutes, um, I want to offer several reflections on the nature of sex work in the Holocaust. I want to lay out the differences between rape and violent sexual barter, critique the notion of enforced prostitution, make a point about agency, and push for a more open and less judgmental history. Now, I have to start with the elephant in the room. What do I mean with sexual barter? It's a concept that I developed about 10 years ago that came out as an article in the feminist journal uh, Science. Um, it means exchange of sex, attention, relationship, affection, long or short term, uh, one time off or lasting, for resources or protection. Um, sexual barter can include uh, sexual acts, but does not have to. Um, and it is an exchange of all of these acts for resources, protection, life, food and such things. Today I will introduce you to four case studies in sexual barter between victims in the concentration camps and ghettos, sexual barter between perpetrators and victims, between uh, um, straight sexual barter and queer sexual barter, with men and women both selling um, sexual services um, in order to save themselves. Um, I will not touch today on uh, rescue uh, and sexual barter, but just as a hint, Katya Gusarov has covered that in her article in the special issue of German history on Holocaust sexuality stigma that I edited last year. But before we get there, I need to start with discomfort of classical feminist studies in Holocaust studies vis-a-vis -vis, uh, sex work. Now, those of you uh, who are familiar a little bit with Holocaust studies will know how immensely difficult it has been in the last 40 years um, in Holocaust studies for gender and women history to be established. Today, it is a well-established field. Um, but in the beginning and until, well, maybe 10 years ago and Actually, even in my time, uh, there has been an immense backlash and this backlash was often quite vicious and quite personal. And maybe this is one of the reasons um, why um, if some topics have been addressed, it was usually sexual violence, but never sexual barter. Um, most often, this is a topic that was simply avoided. If it was touched on, it was either told as a proof of someone's moral failure, and uh, we will come to some of the echoes of that narrative before, uh, or a titillating framework, um, which if you have looked at Jorge Semprun, What a Beautiful Sunday, or Katzetnik, um, is quite a frequent example. And by the way, it's the framework how often sexuality and gender are depicted uh, in the popular depiction of the Holocaust. Or as a story of sexual violence of young innocent women who were abused. Um, Ida Fink's um, Erin Papers comes to mind or one of the examples I will discuss today of Anna Kovanecová Hendrákova. In a way, the narrative that we had hand is almost the vintage second wave feminism of 1970s and 1980s, which is an important narrative, but obstructs, I argue, some of our ways how to understand people's agency and also what is the meaning of sex work. Um, this view has been imprinted into scholarship. Um, important scholars whose work um, uh, I value very much uh, come to mind, like Marina Röga or Marianne uh, Kaplan. And some of the expressions that you find across, just to give you a bit of a, um, 
uh, manual is you look for expressions uh, such as um, enforced prostitution or survival prostitution or hunger prostitution. And these notions, when we look at them more closely, are problematic um, because you find expressions such as as a woman who sold sex while she was in the concentration camps. Of course, she did it only during wartime. And when you put it into the context of sex work more generally, does it imply that women who sell sex in normal times do something um, inappropriate and only the women who are forced to do it during wartime and because of difficult situations are then okay? It has a classy statement and it's a statement that a priori stigmatizes sex work. These trends, I argue, lead our focus from women's agency and thus obstruct our understanding how society in extremism works. There is also a bit of an implication that Holocaust society is somehow different from other societies. Maybe this is even not a society at all, this notion implies. And it's almost as if we needed to prove how evil the Nazis were. Nazis were evil. Committing genocide is evil. But if we kind of continue singling out the Holocaust as a society apart. We will not come to understand it. The societies in the ghettos and concentration camps, people in hiding, were still versions of a society similarly to our society today being a version of a society, the society in the pandemic in London, the society in Texas under snow without electricity. How do I get there? By operating within the context of the history of sex work, and I want to draw here uh, your attention, many of you will be familiar with it, to the doyen uh, of history of prostitution, Jody Volkovitz, who for many years uh, taught gender history at Johns Hopkins, who theorized in late 70s and early 80s that we need to see prostitution as labor, sex work as work. Indeed, this is the activist term of the 1970s to recognizing that this is a sold service akin to cooks um, who sell um, cooked food or to bakers or to hairdressers and to whatnot. Let me show you, and then I will be almost done with historiography, but this is a really important topic. The frequent phrase, she sold her body or she sold herself. You kind of stumble across it and often don't even pay attention to it. But this phrase does some heavy lifting in stigmatization. Teresa von Germatten and others showed that the phrase implies that these women sold something that ought not to be traded, that is irreplaceable. The phrase equates sexual act with the purchase of an entire human being, even the soul. If you sell sex, you do not lose your arm, your vagina, um, part of your soul. Similar to when you bake cakes, you do not become a lesser being, you offer a service. Two more points. What's the difference between sexual barter um, and rape? Many uh, instances of sexual barter in the Holocaust were violent. In fact, the more I work on the topic, the more I think that actually almost all romantic and sexual encounters in the Holocaust, and indeed many social encounters in the Holocaust, were somehow marked by hierarchies, dependencies and violence. And um, therefore, I would differentiate uh, rape and sexual barter. Um, sexual violence can include the moment of choice, but doesn't have to. Rape never includes the moment of choice. So a person can be coerced when they are in hiding into uh, offering sex to the rescuer. 
But if they do not have the moment of choice, even if the choice means being checked on the street, it is still a choice and we should take it seriously. Now, where do we operate with consent, especially informed consent in all of this? I don't think that informed consent is a useful category here. Um, and people like Ilse van Liemt and other feminist scholars have provided some uh, useful leeway here. And therefore, I think we should really throw consent out of the window uh, because we will not really find any moments of uh, meaningful informed consent during the Holocaust. But agency is a useful one. Now, this book that uh, came out in a beautiful English translation in the UK about five or six years ago was a game changer. Alas, it did not come out in the US, which is really sad for uh, American colleagues uh, teaching Nazi Germany or gender history. It's a story of Maria Lovitz-Simon, a young, attractive Berlin Jewish woman who survived in hiding. And she really told the whole story. I was quite blunt. Um, almost chatty, and she spoke about her own sexual barter, but also about what it exactly cost to go into hiding. It could mean that people ask her to babysit, not to eat too much, to be nice to them, uh, to help them with the dishes, um, to do a whole lot of things, but they also ask it for everyone. You see how hiding is a part of a barter, and sexual services are just one of the many services that you um, uh, offer in exchange. It's also quite interesting what uh, services uh, Jalovic Simon was um, willing to give and what kind of made her uncomfortable. And this was a bit of an earthquake in Holocaust studies because Jalovic Simon really discussed sexual barter as one of the many things. She did not stigmatize it and that brought many colleagues uh, to thinking. And yet, one historian analyzing Jalovic Simon wrote, and I quote, are these choices or choiceless choices? And here she uh, operated with Lawrence Langer, to whom I will come later. I do not have an answer. But here's my critique of this kind of, these choices or are these choiceless choices? I think as historians of sexuality and the Holocaust, we must not shy away from these awful difficult answers. And this is what I will offer in the following. And you will not be surprised when I say these are choices. Choiceless choices is not a useful concept. Now, the first example is Anna Kovanicová, uh, who is better known under her married name, Anna Hendrákova. She's still alive, an important Czech Jewish historian of the Holocaust and also the communist resistance. You see her with the little red uh, arrow at the wedding of her uh, cousin. And it's um, uh, quite a difficult story. I, we can start in, in the middle of these difficult stories. Who was born in 1928 in Prague and deported via Theresienstadt, Auschwitz family camp, and the satellite camp of Gross Rosen. In January 1945, she fled with her best friend, Doris W., who was three years older. They also took along Eva Preisova, who was born in 1924. So you have three women. One of them is 21 years old. Um, one is um, 19 years old, and then you have 16-year-old Anna. Um, briefly after they escaped, at the end of January, uh, beginning of February 1945, thus two or three months before liberation, they were caught and brought to concentration camps near what is today the German-Polish border at Görlitz or Gorlice. In both of these camps, the women were treated halfway okay. Uh, materially, they were not threatened on life. They could wash and dress and uh, get new uh, food. But the men expected to have with some of them. 
Govanitsova described um, in her memoir that she wrote in the 1970s the last weeks of the war as a total shock and ongoing rape. After the first night, the head capo and her friends tried to talk sense into Kovanitsova. They even told her that they will pick a young and beautiful lover for her. And now I want to follow her voice. And so I decided to be, quote-unquote, reasonable. But when they came in the evening, quote Tadeo Shandolek, I started panicking and fought all night. He begged and tried it with kindness and without, I did too. I whispered to him, you are a Pole, don't be a jerk like them. It was terrible. I was probably hysterical and I still had the fever. The same repeated the third night. I don't even know if I lost my virginity or not. End of quote. Um, and the story is really complicated. You see it's narrated by this profoundly uh, traumatized uh, young adult woman. Um, but a few days later, uh, the three women arrive, or the three young women arrive into the next concentration camp in the neighborhood, where there's a Kolonju uh, who took a liking in Kovanitsova. She still fought, but became resigned. End of quote. I fought only a little. I, had, I no longer had the will or the strength. End of quote. And then she followed on to explain that the Jew from Cologne was a helpful man who wanted to take care of her. And at this stage, she made a following startling statement. Quote, I was sorry that he did not fall in love with Eva. I thought she would have not minded so much. She once even went for a cube of margarine. With this, she means Eva Prysova. Um, um, she gave her a pseudonym uh, in her uh, memoir. Prysova was called slightly differently, uh, but I was able to find this photograph of her. Eva Prysova and Eva Kovanitsova and Doris survived the war, and after the war, Eva and Anna shared an apartment in Prague, where they had conflicts, because Prysova chose to be sexually active with different men, and Kovanitsova disapproved. What do you have here? In the narrative is stigmatization of women who are sexually active with a number of men and also stigmatization of uh, sex work. Kovanitsova Hendrakova, as I mentioned, is still alive. The third woman, Doris W., uh, passed away about 10 years ago. And when she told the story of the last months, um, she told it quite differently. Prysova's fate took me quite a lot of digging uh, to uncover. She emigrated to Chile and to France where her one surviving sister uh, moved, uh, married, uh, did some publications in sciences and died in early 2000s. From what I am able to see, she never bore a testimony. And what I want to point out here is when we read Kovanitsova Hendrakova, we have a clear example of sexual violence and rape and very limited, if any, choice. But we also have the story of a young woman, of a teenager, who looks at an older woman who decides to sell sex, at least if we follow Kovanitsova, does not mind it so much, but she is judged because she does that. In fact, it is a similar narrative to those of you who are um, um, familiar uh, with uh, the Ringelblum archive and the Warsaw Ghetto. In the Warsaw Ghetto, in the Rigolnov archive, is quite an iconic um, collection by Cecilia Slepak, who uh, looked at gender and women's history of Jews uh, in the ghetto. And she famously interviewed twice uh, Mrs. Guta, who engaged in uh, sex work. Um, and thanks to Cecilia Slepak, we have these accounts of Guta. 
but these are often quite judgmental. And one of the judgmenting, one of the judging moments that stigmatize uh, Guta's uh, decision to support herself and her family with sex work is that Slepak records that Aguta did so only because she was sexually abused as a child. And in this, we can recognize the narrative that there is something psychologically wrong with women who engage in sex work. Next example is heterosexual sexual barter in Theresienstadt, uh, Theresienstadt, the story of Alice Habland, which is a pseudonym. In 1942, a um, 24 year old woman uh, from a very upper, not even upper middle class, upper class uh, from Berlin, uh, whose parents um, uh, were, lived in a so called mixed marriage and whose father had been just murdered, um, um, was deported uh, from Theresienstadt, uh, from Berlin to Theresienstadt. Not only were her parents quite a wealthy family, they were also a very established, almost aristocratic Jewish family. And because her father had been murdered and her mother was Gentile, she arrived to Theresienstadt on her own, only with her sister, who was severely sick with tuberculosis. At first, Habland was shocked with dirt, hunger and overcrowding. But after a few days or weeks, Alice found her feet and started providing for herself and her sister by offering sex for food. Later, when her three elderly disabled female relatives arrived to Theresienstadt, she took them under her wing as well. And this changed some six months later, when the revered leader of German Jews, the Rabbi Leo Beck, um, and a friend of Habeland's family arrived to Theresienstadt. Um, Leonard Baker, who wrote a biography uh, on um, Leo Beck uh, that came out in 1979 and received a Pulitzer Prize, Baker used a specific key to describe Habeland's position. And I quote, this lovely young woman had known all the comforts that money can bring, and she missed them in Theresienstadt. The crowded conditions, the shortage of food, and the dirt eroded her sense of pride and decency. In hopes of an extra scrap of food, a feeling of warmth, a space to breathe in, she became a prostitute. Years later, she said, I don't know what I did, why I did what I did. You can't explain those things. Judaism has no dark and private confessional booth. It does, however, have love and sympathy for the troubled individual. I needed someone to understand my action, she said, and I used back. His compassion for human errors would not allow him to hold my acts against me. He was my conscience, like my father." End of quote. Habeland stopped selling sex. Two months later, her 80-year-old grandmother died. Habland survived the ghetto, never gave testimony to any of the many Holocaust oral history projects, and never mentioned her sex work to her relatives, which is why I gave her a pseudonym here. Habland's story should force us to depart from interpreting sex work as discrediting and victimizing, but rather as a resource. A young woman, alone in a foreign ghetto, she was German-speaking, she did not speak Czech, without any connections, this young woman was able to provide not only for herself, but for four relatives. She sold sex for much more than um, what um, Baker called a scrap of food. Because she was, this is not just a scrap, she was providing for herself and four other uh, women who were um, also disabled or very sick. But also, it is worthwhile to kind of look twice at this scrap of food. What is for us a scrap of food? What is for us 20 or $30 of shopping? 
um, is a lot of food in the context of concentration camps. This can mean vastly different conditions, food for a lot of time, uh, sometimes also protection from transport or better accommodation. Indeed, it is the difference between life and death. Third story. And now we will... Okay, and I wanted to show you a little picture of Alice Haberland uh, from her uh, reparation file. Third story, and here we move to the queer key. And those of you um, who are interested in queer history will be quite familiar with Josef Hogo uh, Kohout, a.k.a. Heinz Heger, an Austrian gay prisoner who was one of the very few prisoners with pink triangle who bore a testimony. He was prosecuted according to paragraph 129 of the Austrian uh, criminal code, um, same-sex intimacy. Uh, by the way, the Austrians had a different criminal code throughout the war to persecute uh, gay and lesbians. In Germany, you had 175, in Austria, 100, 129, and 129 uh, criminalized also female um, um, same-sex intimacy. But Kohout was men. By the way, the book came out as Heinz Heger, because when it came out in the early 70s, just after homosexuality has been decriminalized, um, he chose uh, to publish it under an alliance, but we know that his uh, real name was Joseph Kohout. So in scholarship, both names are used, which can be confusing, but don't be confused. Gohout was lucky to survive Sachsenhausen and Flossenburg in his memoir. And if you haven't read it yet, I encourage you to read The Mank with Pink Triangle. It also was then dramatized as a play and later as a movie under the name Bent. Gohout recalls that at first he was sexually assaulted. He appeared to his fellow prisoners as fair game because as a man with a pink triangle, and this is how the Nazis uh, marked uh, prisoners persecuted because of queerness, uh, male prisoners, he was as such perceived feminine and therefore sexually available. And he's very clear in the depictions of this first sexual um, encounter, this uh, assault and rape, that there was no moment of choice and this is uh, rape. Indeed, it's actually particularly harrowing and interesting to have such a depiction that we are so used to be told from a female perspective, from a male perspective. Later, he was forced to become the lover of first one and later another couple, prisoner functionary, men who identified as straight, but being in the monosexual concentration camps had relationships with Kohout. Kohout described how the first relationship did not come about from his free will, but how he swapped the first partner for the next because he was a better match. He was a bigger shot in the concentration camp. And he, you can see how Kohout was able to build up his leeway and to improve his positions, expand his control, because particularly significantly, um, he kind of uses sexual barter to improve his conditions in the concentration camps. What I also want to draw your attention to is how both men who identified as straight and had relationship with Kohout because this was a monosexual camp and this is the time before they opened the forced uh, brothel. Um, both of the men grew to like Kohout and even engage in gestures reserved for established couples such as jealousy, taking him on labor assignments outside or crying from joy when he visited them uh, in the camp hospital in the sick bay. And I just kind of included here because it's one of my favorite points that draw our attention how we can uh, read the concentration camps and gender beyond the binary male and female and also sexuality between straight um, and uh, versus uh, uh, queer. With the help of these relationships, 
Kohout was able to make a career within the prisoner society, became a prisoner functioner himself. At the end of his narrative, could afford the ultimate status, a freely chosen relationship with another prisoner who himself was imprisoned as a pink triangle. Some of you will also be familiar with the narrative of Gad Beck, a queer, a so-called half-Jewish uh, Berlin resistance fighter who bartered um, sex uh, for the men and women whom he helped to go into hiding. But what I want to kind of just briefly point out here is how incredibly gendered agents and sexual barter between men and women is narrated. Um, it is even more pronounced uh, for heterosexual identified men who experience queer sexual barter, as uh, uh, Dorota Glowacka has pointed out, and it's even more it's even more differently narrated for men who engage in heterosexual barter. Um, for example, Cornelie Usborn has written on French POWs, uh, male POWs, who uh, in Germany engage in relationships and back course into relationships. Uh, with German housewives and how these men narrate these quite clearly coercive relationships as kind of sexual triumph uh, that kind of prove their prowess and how then um, heterosexual identified men narrate queer and force queer sexual barter as something violent but not necessarily sexual or something that is disgusting but it's disgusting because the men who force them into this relationship are disgusting because they're gay not because of this coercion and then we have yet a uh, different narrative um, with uh, Kohout and then we have yet different narrative with women and coercive sexual barter and I just kind of want to throw it out there because of course it correlates with our expectation of sexuality of violence um, and of gender roles the last story that I want to touch on is Margot, and it's a story that I feel particularly tenderly about. Margot, who is still alive, in fact, it was her birthday just uh, today, uh, was born in Bielefeld, oh, well, she grew up in Bielefeld in Germany, uh, having been born in 1928. When she was 14, she was deported with her parents and younger sister to Theresienstadt, where, like most young children and youngsters, was accommodated in a youth home. The youth homes in Theresienstadt were separated according to age and to uh, gender. And in this uh, youth home, uh, I think L117, she met the girl whom she calls the love of her life, a young, attractive teenager uh, from Vienna called Dita. In May 1944, um, Dita and later Margot were deported to the Auschwitz family camp. And in July 44, Dita and her aunt decided to pass the selection. They knew that the camp is going to be closed down, that everybody who is not seen as fit for labor uh, will be executed. And Margot decided to leave behind her uh, biological family to follow Dita. She uh, recalled, I would have gone with her anywhere. And her parents and her little sister um, decided not to pass the selection because they believed uh, they did not believe that the uh, 12 or 13 year old sister would have had a chance. So you see here a moment of um, agency, of choice, of kinship, of following the girl with whom she was in love and leaving behind her nuclear family. It's a story that can be unpacked in a number of ways, but I just want to kind of read here the queer kinship. And together with 600 other uh, women, Dita and Margot were deported to Hamburg, where they went through uh, three uh, um, satellite camps, um, uh, Dessau-Ufer, 
Neugraben and Tiefstag. And I actually want to zoom in on the layers of sexual barter that happens between Margot, Ditta and their other women. The two girls, maybe because they were younger, maybe because they were in love, um, maybe for a number of other reasons, actually recalled Hamburg as a happy time, as almost as a kind of pink bubble. And Margot uh, was clear that maybe because she was still 16 and 17, it was for her not as difficult as for other women. She was not quite so hungry. And in the winter when there was snow, they would go sledding down the hill uh, in the camp where they were brought. But they also witnessed homophobia of other women who sometimes witnessed the two girls kissing and hugging on their bunk bed and saying something like, this is not normal. And the uh, aunt of Ditas had to defend the two of them because they are just teenagers and it does not matter. But what I want to pay, uh, draw your attention to is that Margot in her oral history to me, um, uh, uh, three years ago when I visited her, um, came across a following story that I want to share with you. And I quote from our um, oral history. Margot, then I work for the foreman of labor, the guy that was in charge for us. He assigns the jobs, I mean. I don't even remember what jobs I had. He asked me to work in his cabin. What I had to do is heat up his lunch, clean his cabin, and I was indoors. So when I heated up his lunch, I used to steal meat from it before. And this is the meat that she would stuff into her bra and then share it with Dita. And back to the quote. And I remember him saying, you know, things are getting tough. I'm getting less meat. <laughs> and we both laughed. I remember, but I let him touch me for that. Sexually, he didn't rape me. He touched me. I, Anna. That was most unpleasant. Margot. Yes, you do a lot when you are hungry. Anna, was he like old and disgusting? Margot, he wasn't old. He was a fairly decent, nice guy. You see here how I completely fell out of my role as an interviewer who is supposed to sit and listen and not ask stupid questions. And my first reaction, even as a woman who has established sexual barter, to say, oh, you, he, he touched you sexually, he must have been old and disgusting because this is how we kind of read everything. And Margot insisted that this was a decent man who stuck fingers into her private parts, that this is something that they never discussed, that he never tried to assault him in a different way, and that he let her take food away from him, but they never discussed it either. And all of this food that she took away from him, um, she shared with Dita. This was not the only sexual barter in which the two girls exchanged in the camp before, in the Sao Ufa. Um, um, the Jewish women were accommodated on one floor of a building in the harbor and on a different floor, uh, Italian POWs were accommodated. Many of the women had an admirer or a boyfriend or a partner in sexual barter with whom they met. And one of them was also um, Dita. At night, she would sneak out and go into the basement where um, uh, people could meet and Margot stood guard with them. Um, it is not quite clear what the two of them did, uh, but Margot believes that the two of them had sex and then Dita would come back with uh, food that she shared with Margot. As an old lady, Dita um, uh, recalled her wartime story um, and she recalled this encounter as a romantic support of a nice stranger who helped her because she needed um, help. The same story Margot um, recalled to me, I don't think she was in love with him. She did it for food. And this food, as I mentioned, she brought to Margot. 
So what I want to invite you here to do is to not automatically see these things as a kind of romantic support of a girl in need, uh, as kind of this damsel in distress, and we do not only take it as sexual barter, that we have these very contrasting narratives. It is quite obvious that Margot kind of dismisses her um, um, the Italian man as somebody with whom her girlfriend only um, exchanged um, sex um, in exchange for food. And we also see why Dita told the story differently. I do not want to say how it really was, but I want to share with you these contrasting narratives. And with that, I come to a conclusion and I have four points to make. First, men ate the food that the um, female relatives exchange uh, for sexual barter and then judge their wives, daughters and sisters who got it for them in such a way. Rather than engaging in the same, we need to understand where the judgment is coming from and not apply a priori stigma to our understanding of sexual barter. Um, it's also quite striking that while much of the stigma of sexual barter comes from male testimonies, but not only from that, we should uh, pay attention that men uh, bartering sex is largely much less stigmatized. Second, we need to think about context of the value of, appointment, uh, value of payment, which leads us to quite a hard topic of dignity and mentality of the perpetrator, the client, the punter. I kind of already spelled it out uh, with, uh, with Alice Haberland. This scrap of food is not just a scrap of food. A loaf of bread in concentration camp is a very valuable thing. So we need to think about the value of the counter value. If somebody takes someone into hiding and hides them for a week, for a month, for a year, this is not a small thing. And some people put their life into danger and also put their life upside down. Some of situations, and I'm talking here still about counter value, are even more difficult. Omer Vardov draws our attention to moments in Bocic ghetto where gentlemen would come in pick uh, attractive looking women uh, for rescue, um, have sex with them and when they fell pregnant, uh, threw them out. So you have moments when the counter value doesn't come through and then you don't have sexual barter. What I think about all of this context uh, draws my, uh, I would um, contextualize it with the research of Olven Houghton, another important historian of the poor and 18th century, what she calls the economies of the makeshift. It's Poor women's participation of the economy of makeshift is an acquired art, a learned set of responses to economic crisis and chronic unemployment in which they sell food or clean or uh, do something else and sometimes also sell sex. Three, I still want to say something about stigma and how incredibly important it is that we do not take it on board. but that rather than throwing it out of the window, I believe our job is to address it as a topic in its own right. People who sold sex, particularly women, but not only, were marked as deviant. And as such, largely were not able to bear testimony. This is really important, even existential, for Holocaust survivors, because bearing testimony was such an important moment of agency after the war, but also was a really key moment of being a citizen of the history after undergoing genocide. It's really important to think so carefully about the language we are using as historians of the sexual battery in the Holocaust. We carry the responsibility to analyze stigma, but also deconstruct it. 
you will see how I strove talking about Eva Prysova as a woman who chose to engage in sexual contact with a um, range of men. This is not the language that Eva Kovanecova used about her. Finally, um, what you will find in scholarship uh, quite often is a bit of a kind of moralizing counterpoint of um, these men, and it's often men who buy these sexual count, uh, um, uh, services, is he should have given her the food without any counter value. Yes, that's philosophically correct, I guess. But um, it kind of misses the whole world of the concentration camps um, and rescue and is ahistorical. What I do with sexual barter and what I think we should do with sexual barter is historicizing sexual barter to understand the mentality and society of the camps and not to kind of insist on some historical, philosophical uh, points that do not help us understand how society works. In fact, when we look at historicizing sexual barter in the concentration camps, it helps us understand what is seen as decent and what are the leeways and what is the agency of these people. And therefore, I have always used sexual barter to kind of um, as um, as a point to uh, critique uh, these choiceless choices, um, a concept that builds on Lawrence Langer, in which um, choices of the Holocaust victims ought not to be taken seriously because they were shorn of dignity. Now, Langer wrote about situations in annihilation camps where people's uh, leeway is even more uh, limited, but his uh, notion of choiceless choices has kind of become a bit of automatic uh, runner-off. So let me take it uh, to make one more plea that we need to take uh, the agency of the bartering party seriously. Thank you and let me end on the note of my favorite uh, witness. Thank you very much, Anna, for a very thought-provoking talk. And uh, uh, so we have a few questions and just for the audience, we take more questions. So the first one uh, was raised by uh, Mitchell. Is it naive to believe the Nazis followed the code that forbid them from having sex with Jews? Uh, yes, it is naive. Thank you so much for this question. Uh, there is a wealth of scholarship uh, on this topic from Regina Mühlhäuser, whose book just came out in English translation uh, with Edinburgh uh, University Press as uh, Sex and the Nazi Soldier. And um, the book is not completely affordable, but uh, maybe the University Library at San Diego can purchase the book and read the book. It's amazing. Regina is amazing. Invite Regina. Um, use the Zoom time. The pandemic is horrible, uh, but at least you can bring people from around the world. Maybe you don't have to bring her at 1 a.m. Uh, she's not as mad as I am. Um, and Regina Milhoes is one of the eminent scholars who has looked at how uh, the Rassenschande, the racial defilation, played out uh, in the practice. She shows how more to the far to the east, uh, the more uh, the Nuremberg, uh, or the less the Nuremberg laws were taken seriously. Uh, so I want to just, you know, there is uh, lots of scholarship on this. People like Helene Zinreich and others have written on this topic. But I just want to say one more thing about Regina Milhäuser. She pointed out to the fact that many instances of uh, sexual violence did not include penal rape and therefore were not technically prosecutable under Nuremberg laws. Also, Nuremberg laws were not quite so often uh, prosecuted. Thank you, Anna. Uh, another question by Deborah. 
Can you identify uh, other sorts of barter that occurred, uh, barter that was also frowned upon or accepted? That's a good question. I mean, this is why, I mean, I did it just very briefly with uh, Jalovic Simon, how uh, she shows the many forms of barter that it took to someone to take into hiding. Uh, Susanna Schrafstetter in her beautiful study on uh, Munich Jews in hiding shows that uh, hiding often was a business and people uh, pay for it. And then there were also uh, examples of the Judenfladera, people who... Um, Uh, took from Jews all the money that they had. And when these uh, uh, Jewish um, uh, U-Bote had nothing more to give, they would check them out on the street or worse yet, uh, even denounce them to the Gestapo. Uh, so he, you do not have really a moment of counter value. You have uh, people who, um, what is often asked of them to be always pleasant. And some of the things that I am interested in the work that I'm doing uh, currently uh, in an article is how... When we look at hiding as an interaction, how it's something that a priori corrupts um, social interactions. Because when somebody does you a favor, you say thank you, and maybe you send them a bottle of wine, and then you are quits. Or, you know, I asked Susanne to send me a scan, I say thank you, then she asks me next month to send her a scan, and I do it, and we are done. But it's not like I move into her house and say, you know, We have the pandemic in Britain and things are horrible and please put me up here because, you know, for a week I would be nice and maybe more the lawn, but would I not be a hassle after that? Yes, I would be a hassle and Susanna would be nice and put up with me. But uh, this or this example that is a little bit, I guess, absurd. I like to use these absurd examples because it draws our attention to how these moments kind of start corrupting this um, kind of network of social interactions. And when somebody does you this immense favor, how hard it is to say, no, I will not do this to you. I will not wash your floors. I will not babysit your children. I will not eat less breakfast and I will not have sex with you. So this is the circumspect response to go to these many, many uh, barter moments. Um, I would also encourage you, if you if you have access, do read Maria Lovitzimon. I think in the US you should be able to buy it on Kindle. Or maybe the book could come out in the US. It's also a very beautifully written memoir. Thank you. Susan, I will not move in with you. Don't worry. Oh, I'm not worried. I'm not worried at all. <laughs> um, another question. Uh, one guest asks, do you consider agency as a fixed trait or is it uh, more a process according to the situations you find yourself in? It's a process. And that's actually a great point. I will take it on board. I mean, one of the things that I want to do when I have time is to sit down and read more theory and I do it kind of as I go. So um, if the person asking this question has time and inclination and could email me maybe some readings about how to conceptualize agency as a, uh, as a process that would be much appreciated and I also write it down. Um, if you can, the person who asked the question, you can reach out to me and I will get you in touch with, with Anna. That, that should work. Uh, another question. Pamela is asking if uh, we find uh, that Lawrence Langer's concept of uh, choiceless choice is problematic, if we reject that language, is there other language we can use? To describe these circumscribed or constrained circumstances? 
Basically. Well, in a way, we really still live in the kind of aftermath of um, uh, choiceless choices. In a way, Primo Levi's gray zone uh, operates with something similar. Um, you may call me a bit of a pessimist, um, but as I work in the British neoliberal university landscape, I do not think we live in a world in which we have a whole lot of choices. We operate in these extremely circumstantial leeways where we cannot really do what we want. We just try to do the best out of difficult situations. I mean, look at the university in the age of COVID in which we have to teach more and be available more and do better and still publish and do things. Uh, and uh, try to be uh, good colleagues. Of course, we are not in a concentration camp, but I think if we take a good hard look at uh, any society, we see how incredibly circumvented choices are. This is what I learned from reading Judith Wolkowitz or Mary Jarfitz or Julia Laid on sex work. Many of these instances are very limited and quite violent, and these men and women who engage in sex work consistently try to look for the best choices. And therefore, if I can pick a hill on which I will die, it has been my endeavor to place the Holocaust as a version of a society and not a deviance. Okay, another question. Um, Arthur asks, how prevalent was sexual barter? And uh, this guest is actually guessing that mostly it was practiced by attractive women and only a few. Oh, so after yes and no. I think when you start looking at sexual barter, um, you start guessing it uh, that it was actually quite prevalent. And what I find so helpful at this concept, um, and this is also why I insisted in the beginning, we need to get away from the assumption that sexual barter always includes sexual acts. It can be flirting. It can be kind of promising to go someone and be nice to them or to go on a date. Um, and it is something that is the fabric of, um, of, um, of the society of the concentration camps. In my micro history of Neugraben, that is, by the way, how uh, Susanne and I uh, met each other because our work uh, interlinked her on the Nagotlibova at my on Willy Brachman. You see how many women in this uh, satellite camp of Neugraben, of, of Neungame, uh, engage in various forms of sexual barter. And when you kind of start following one concentration camp very closely, you see how many uh, prisoners uh, use it as a way of negotiating the everyday, but also how the civilians, how the POWs, how the forced laborers uh, in the camp next door all go to these women who are emaciated, whose hair has been cut short, who wear uniforms, who cannot wash properly and who sometimes suffer from enteritis, so they smell of excrement and consistently offer them um, food in exchange for sex. So after this, I would really, um, as, a, as a classical historian of everyday life, I would encourage us to take microhistories quite importantly because studying something in great detail will help us understand the society in um, of, of, the, of the Holocaust in a bigger detail. Um, the assumption that only women who are perceived as uh, attractive can sell sex, I think kind of misses the point of society. A lot of people sell sex whether they are perceived as attractive or not. Um, I mean, just look at 
any of the activists of sex work, whether they are attractive or not. Okay, um, I think that concludes our events. These are very good questions. Uh, thank you so much, Anna. I hope in the hopefully nearish future, we can welcome you in person. But for now, it was great that you spent the very early morning with us. I would like to thank everybody for being here. Um, and uh, I wish you a good night. Thank you. Bye-bye.